Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's bigger mysteries. Welcome back to Growth Island. My name is Mess Freeze, and I can get the pleasure to host you. Today, I got an international expert. She is an expert on longevity and health. She has uh, written a book and kind of frame that I'll let her explain herself, but that is changing people's lives around the world. She has been on Dave Asprey's podcast. She told me that I'm not allowed to eat kale, where I'm like, what happened to my smoothies? Uh, and we're going to talk more about mold as well. And this is an interview that could go on for hours. I, um, she granted me an hour of her time, so I will get straight into it. I got uh, Terry Cochran on the show. Terry, thank you so much for coming on. So lovely to be with you and your audience today. So you have a background more similar to mine, coming from the business side and then realizing that something else was up and we need to do it. Could you just give us a, a quick intro to how you got into the world of health? I'd love to do that. I would have never guessed that 20 years ago, I'd be talking to you and talking about mold and killer kale. But with my firstborn, whose birthday happens to be today, he's 27 today. Thank you. At the age of three, we were told at his well checkup that to prepare for brain seizures, that he wouldn't grow past five foot four, that well, he at the time he had life-threatening asthma. And for the next couple of years, his health continued to decline even though we were availing ourselves. We live in the Metro Washington, D.C. area, so we have a lot of wonderful hospitals here and a lot of experts, but we couldn't find the right expert to understand what was happening. And he was really becoming debilitated year over year, month over month, and we would spend weeks in the hospital at a time where he couldn't breathe. And because I was working as an institutional risk manager, I ran a, a business unit within the multifamily division of Freddie Mac. So we're in charge of billions and billions of dollars of uh, multifamily assets. And I was a risk manager in that regard. I applied my risk management skills to trying to find a health solution for my son because I was told he was, he was broken and that's the way he would have to live. And so that was before the age of Google, couldn't Google anything. So I became a very keen observer and incredibly curious as to why was his body doing this? So I had my day job, which was risk management for assets. And I had my night job, which was risk management for my important, most important asset, which was my son. And I hit a tipping point understanding that it was the foods that I was feeding him that were supposed to be healthy were actually contributing to a significant portion of his symptomology, and it was affecting his endocrine function and his immune system dramatically. So fast forward over the next, that was it, five over the next five years, I continued to become his uh, risk manager, and he became my first and most important client. I left I left this world, uh, that world rather, of uh, institutional finance. And now over almost 18 years later, I've developed and accumulated a body of knowledge that has served thousands all over the world with my own methodology. That is a hard story, but fantastic story of then being able to make that impact. I find a lot of people actually in the health base are coming from a different angle. And that is why they're finding new solutions because they come with a skill set 
and they run into like life problems and they're like, okay, I need to find solutions to this. So like, let's look at like root causes instead of um, a fixed paradigm of just treating uh, symptoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was really that intersection of understanding why was his body behaving that way. And now as I look in the rear view mirror, because I've become a nutrigenomics expert, epigenetics expert, is that the foods that we were feeding him were actually contributing to a genetic expression causing his Yeah. So I think it's fantastic now that we, like we had the paradigm for a while that we thought that the genes was everything and that we were doomed by our genes. And now we luckily know that we're not doomed by our genes. They definitely have an impact, but it's whether like they actually become active or not in the epigenetics. What are some of the things that you have seen in your experience? I know you're involved in uh, Singularity University as well and like at the forefront of this stuff. And as we talked about before, uh, close friends with Dave as well. Like what are some of the things that you see as the key for uh, turning bad genes on? Well, the Cochrane method, which I developed, looks at four major portals of expression for genes. And it's pathogenic, and that can be a bacteria, a virus, a parasite, or a fungus. It can express genes. It can be an environmental impact like food or a mercury level or a pesticide or a VOC in our home with uh, uh, from our car- carpet. It can be an emotional burden. We, the beautiful work of Dr. Bruce Lipton, who I've had the pleasure of dining with and having a great exchange with, he has really proven that our thoughts signal the genetic expression. And so I say the thought creates the thing. And so we can do everything else right. And if our thinking is wrong, we can still have a genetic expression. And then interestingly enough, because I work with a lot of world-class athletes, physical impact can also cause a genetic expression, especially if it's one to the head where the pituitary is impacted and all of a sudden it's firing differently and then genetic expression ensues. So those are the four portals of expression, genetic potential genetic expression under my model. Yeah, that uh, sounds like the way you set it up, the different aspects is also what I'm hearing from different experts and someone is just specialized in one And sometimes they get caught up in just that one uh, reason where I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Like there are these different ways in. So it's about figuring out which one is it. But how do we then fix it? Well, what's really beautiful about the body is it's constantly giving us feedback. And I call ourselves body interpreters. I, I speak multiple languages and one of them is body. And I've become really keenly attuned and I'm teaching this method. I'm starting to teach this method. I have a naturopathic doctor that's also in my practice who applies this methodology to uh, our client base is that through applied kinesiology, which is a form of muscle testing, and I've adapted it to really intersect with my methodology, the body can give us granular real-time feedback. Is that gene expressed? And how is that gene expressed? So through muscle testing, we look at the balancing and imbalance of a substance in the body. So for example, if you have an overgrowth of candida, which is a fungal organism, which can play a massive negative impact on the body, through the muscle testing and applied kinesiology, we can discern where that imbalance is falling because it may not be systemic. It may be hiding in your thyroid. Or for example, the Epstein-Barr virus, which has been roundly looked at as a I call it the puppet master in Hashimoto's. Over 80% of Hashimoto's has been linked to this virus. 
yet you're not having mononucleosis, which is the, the original form of how the virus presents itself, but instead you're having these autoimmune markers uh, from the thyroid. And what we know is when we then give the antidote, because everything is energy, I basically work in the field of energy medicine in the sense that I apply biochemistry, but then I also apply quantum biology to match this beautiful dance in the body and then interpret what's going on. So the signs and signals from the body give the practitioner real-time feedback on how to then best manage that imbalance. And then we also muscle test the corresponding supplement. And what's so beautiful about my methodology is even the best, most functionally trained practitioners, they'll say, oh, you have this CBS gene, which is cystathione beta synthase gene. So therefore, just because they'll look at a genetic model, therefore you need to take vitamin B6. Well, not always. If that B6 is excitatory to your nervous system and the way we understand that is by muscle testing at the nervous system level, then that's not the best vitamin. That's not the best support. And then we go back and look at, well, what's an alternative to help us discern what's that best match. And that's why in my practice, we actually do have just unprecedented results with very little herxing, if any. Herxing is, it's called a healing crisis. And then they say, well, you're supposed to get worse before you get better. In my practice, that rarely happens because we've tied it to what's your best match. And we don't guess because we're, we're getting that real body feedback in real time from that individual. And how does that work, the muscle testing? Because I heard about that before, but super curious, like how does it work and what, how do we know that it works? Well, what's really interesting how we know it works is that we work very collaboratively with many doctors. And if we muscle test here, find the imbalance, we get the serum work, it's almost identically matched. And what we, the way muscle testing evolved, and I did not invent it, I just took my own application. Montague, who was a Nobel Prize winner for AIDS research, found that when he was doing his research in the centrifuge of cleaning his vials, he found that there were subatomic particles that carried an electromagnetic signature of whatever that substance was. And through that approach, he said, well, if we put that electromagnetic signature in a vial a solution, then it's going to carry that wave. And we know that everything on the planet has its individual, like a fingerprint of a, of a resonant wave. How do we and measure that? What's that? How do we measure that? How do we measure that? It's yeah. met, actually out of Germany. They've done some studies that show that even viruses have a specific signature frequency yeah. that is measured. Okay. And so what's so interesting about that is as you apply it to the biofield of the individual. And we now know, and this has been, this has been not discovered, but it's been confirmed from the National Institutes of Health here in Washington, D.C., that the body has an energetic field called the biofield. And when we put energy against energy, if there's an interruption in the field, then the nerve can no longer fire to the muscle to hold your arm up. And I tell you, I, I, again, I've worked with some of the world's top athletes and they can't control their muscle if there's an imbalance in the field when you put that electromagnetic signature in the field. And muscle testing has been used by many for many years, including acupuncturists. There's a whole way to discern allergy allergies through a called NAET, natural allergy elimination through acupuncture. And they actually take the vials to neutralize the body. It's fascinating. And I've seen it done in real time. So, so, you, so you give people some kind of um, container. 
or, or, or in COVID, I've been holding it and I just hold it al along their body yeah. systems. And then depending on how they react, you can tell like, hey, you have a challenge with this. Yeah. It's an Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you send them sometimes to some uh, doctors to get blood tests as well yes. to, to confirm that's the imbalance. Yes, and sometimes really what happens with us, Madison, is we receive many referrals from the doctors. Uh, we're sort of the body detectives, and when complex cases can't be figured out, they send them to us. Yeah, huh? that makes sense. But I think I find it extremely fascinating. So I'm a big believer in ancestral wisdom and that we can measure everything with Western science. And there's many things that when we look in 10 years time, we'll be laughing at our paradigm today. Just like we thought that the brain was fixed. We now know that it's not fixed in meditation help. But I'm always curious as well to know, like, where are we with these different treatments on like being able to measure it and kind of saying with Western science, that's not the same that it's not working. Like hypnotherapy, more studies are coming out as well. And so it's just kind of to understand like, and I heard some somewhere, I'm not sure if you can confirm it, that Some of these uh, muscle testing was like 70% or so kind of accurate with like the gold standard of blood testing, but I haven't been able to find a study to say it, but. Yes, it's really interesting. And, and <clears throat> interestingly enough, I've had the pleasure of meeting a past assistant surgeon general here yeah. in the United States. And he's so curious about my work. He's going to come shadow my practice. Yeah. And he's got now a not-for-profit organization that looks like He says, in, uh, in God we trust in everything we need data. So he's very much looking to see how we can, you know, actually do some clinical trials on this because it is this precise. I have thousands and thousands of clinical outcomes that prove it is precise. And not just that you get healthy, but you stay healthy. Yeah. Yeah. But it must also be hard to get money for doing studies like that because it's hard to patent, right? It is hard to patent. Yeah. And I think that's a challenge with many natural modalities that we know are working but it's simply just really hard to get enough like to do the big studies so we can say that it's working right. I, I don't believe we need a patent in this because the process is the process. And yeah. I, my goal is to teach the process. This is part of my 2021 through 2025 mission yeah. is to really bring this out here broadly. And I've had a lot of yeah. many sources on how is this done and how is the Cochrane method so efficacious. So Yeah. I'm really proud of that. And that is my goal for the next, uh, the next. Yeah. I definitely don't think we need to patent everything. It was more just like in why there's many things we don't have studies on because they're simply so expensive. I spoke to someone the other day who um, um, is from USC, David Feifel, mm -hmm. and he talked about ketamine and how ketamine is no longer like, it's now a um, generic drug. Um, but how Johnson had changed, changed it into something they could patent, which wasn't as efficient, but then they could make a study and then they could get it uh, approved for the insurance. Mm -hmm. So that's just a general dilemma that we often run into. And when I talk to friends and other people about like, oh, why don't we have double-blinded studies? Then it can't be true. Then it's also like kind of understand the dynamics of how much money does it cost to do a double-blinded study with right. a big number of people and so on. And, and that can be hard sometimes. Yes, it can. And my methodology is the proof is in the outcome. Yeah. And so this is this person is coming in. We're still in the in dialogue. We haven't really finalized our consideration, but it's he he's here by 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 he's invited himself to come in to, to observe because he's so curious about uh, what my results have been. Yeah. He's seen the results and now he's really curious. Yeah, I think that's one of the ways is that 
individuals that have somewhere else as well can see like, okay, there's something we need to get out to the world and can then be part of finance and some of the studies so we can show it to more people and get more trust in it. Indeed, indeed. And there's, I'm, I work with some amazing doctors, so I'm very collaborative. I'm not anti-medicine. I'm pro-health. Yeah. Uh, and so whatever it takes to really reach that sustainable and optimal health, that's the best model. Yeah. So it's not about fighting or not about one side being right or one side being wrong, but what can we use? What is the best of all of what we know to create long lasting health? Yeah, I agree. So mold is something that I got very curious about because it's not something I hear on many podcasts or when I read books and so on, but that intuitively when I heard about it the first time, I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. Why haven't I heard more about that before? Well, mold is a really big deal. And at the core of what was really wrong with my son was that he had a significant mold sensitivity because his adrenals were so under supported that what they were giving him to allow him to breathe were steroids, which is an anabolic, it's an anabolic hormone, which feeds sugar. And so in second grade, he had strep throat 11 times. Now, strep is a bacterial infection, but also feeds on mold. And he, we were regularly feeding him peanut butter. And he was having, because he was gluten-free, he was having corn-based products, which also carries mold. And so what I do know about mold creates biofilm. Biofilm is a protective layer to, for the organism. Mold can disrupt the brain. The, the mold, a form of mold is candida, can affect thyroid function. And can, it can create a dopamine imbalance. So people can become manic. They can become depressed. They can become suicidal. Mold will also feed other bacteria such as streptococcus. We know in the world of pediatric autoimmune psychiatric disorder that strep is at its root and these children, and I've worked with them, are less than 10 years old and they're, they're, they are homicidal and suicidal. They're trying to kill their parents, their siblings or themselves, and they're five and seven years old. And so you can't look to, in those children, where it looks like a mental health issue, you can't look at the pharmatropic. You've got to look at why do, were these genes expressed? And there's an HLA-DQ2 gene, which goes to you having a higher mold sensitivity. There's a SUOX gene or the gopher gene, as I call it, which shows that you don't have the ability to process oxalates. When you can't process oxalates, oxalates are also contributory to making mold. And so when we have a mold overgrowth, we can have dramatic impact anywhere from brain fog to fibromyalgia to Lyme-like symptoms to multiple sclerosis. I had a client who had seen over 30 practitioners. This was in 2019 or two, yeah, 2019. They told her she had MS in Lyme. She didn't. She had a significant mold sensitivity. She had lost her ability to, to walk. She was very... Um, cognitively impaired. She was dramatically depressed and super anxious. She'd lost six levels of vision. Her, she had significant cystic acne. She was having organ failure. They had misdiagnosed her. When she came to our practice, we found the imbalance significantly was mold strep in a, in a viral load. And within, within eight weeks, she was 80% better. And now she's got this very beautiful growing yoga studio in New York. And it was, they just got it wrong. And so mold was, the, was at the root, and, and, in, and in fact, it was in her apartment. And she ended up throwing all of her clothes away. She just bagged it up and threw it away. Because when mold permeates, it's not just internal mold, it's how the mold that we, we breathe in. Environmental mold can be extremely dangerous. Yeah. 
So what we do in our practice is we eliminate any food that can contribute to the production of mold. And that's the healthy food like peanut butter, which is a high oxalate almonds, which is high oxalate, even berries can have, if you, especially if you have an oxalate sensitivity and a mold overgrowth, berries can contribute to significant symptomology. And we match your genetic blueprint to your current state of health. So if you have a, a high sensitivity to mold and you have all these genes that have been expressed and you're eating the wrong foods and taking the wrong supplements. So for example, mushrooms, therapeutic mushrooms are really touted in line in autoimmune because of their immune building properties. But mushrooms are a fungus. If you have a fungal overgrowth, why would you feed yourself fungus? And so that's why our, the granularity of how we approach the body overall is a beautiful symphony. And that's why our results are unprecedented. Yeah. So how do we first identify whether we have a mold problem? Because with, with many things in health, we can take a certain dose. Once that dose become too high, we can, we need to really eliminate it, right? Yes. So how do we first figure that out? And then afterwards, like, how do we go about it? Yes. Yeah. So first thing is body talk. Look at your body. Do you have warts? Have you had uh, chronic yeast infections? Do you have chronic UTIs? Have you had chronic ear or throat infections? Do you have nail fungus or toe nail fungus? Do you have thrush? Have you had thrush? Do you have itchy ears, right? Are you sensitive to, to humid places? So we look at the body. That's the first telltale sign. The second thing is there are many reports. There's Genova Diagnostics can look to arabinose, which is a, a metabolite of candida. It can look to your oxalate oxalic acid levels, which show that you have mold overgrowth. There's many species of mold that can be looked at through blood or urine. And so organic acid tests, uh, Genova diagnostic tests, there are many tests that you can undertake to discern what's going on. But we always look back to the body. The body's giving us real-time feedback. You know, if I had If I just had a big bowl of mushrooms, a mushroom salad or a mushroom soup, and I can't think in 30 minutes, or I start sneezing, or I start itching, or I feel like my stomach hurts, or all of a sudden, if you're a woman and you're having discharge that's unusual, those are all indicators. And where are the most common mold coming from? I know apartments can be really big. Yes, apartments, the HVAC system, any kind of water damage, but they're also coming from our environment. We actually uh, teach our clients to eat counter-seasonally. So here in the Washington, D.C. area, when the leaves start falling, they're full of mold. That's our mold season. And so we remove, if you want to be optimal, we remove those food sources from, how, from their diet for, for a while because... Because why would you want to have the body have another burden that it has to metabolize? So no, no peanuts, no green peas, no green beans, no mushrooms, and then foods that have high oxalate loads like black beans and almonds and strawberries, those that will have high oxalate load. And even spinach is an oxalate and killer kale. <laughs> and kale. So that doesn't leave a lot of food left. Oh, yeah. uh, I think that's the, I think many listeners when they're listening, they're like depending on what experts you talk to, almost all food are banned because you talk to one expert, then meat is bad. Um, then you talk to another one saying like grass-fed meat, then it's okay. Uh, then rice is bad. Then rice is okay. 
then greens are good, uh, but you need to boil the greens or damp the greens. How, how does someone navigate in that? So we, this is what we do. We're experts in navigating your genetic blueprint and your current state of health. So you will eat differently over different times of the year. We have women eating differently during different times in your cycle. If women don't, aren't generally good at metabolizing fat, then during their period and mid-cycle, we say pull off of fats and then you can introduce them. It's a dance. And so what's, what our mind has been set to understand and think that this is the way, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I can only go this way. That's wrong. That's bad thinking. This is where I am today. Today, I felt like having mango. I needed some vitamin A this morning before our talk, and I needed some eggs for good protein. Can I have eggs every day? No, because I have a sulfur sensitivity. And if I did, I would start feeling it in my joints over time. So it's this leaning in and leaning out of what is it that my body needs. And I will tell you, I've worked with children I've been in this practice for 15 years, so I've seen children grow in my practice, and they are so astute in understanding their body. They know those that have really been in my clinic, and I graduate them, but they come back because they want to see what's going on, not because they're sick anymore, but because they're, they just want to get a check-in, or they've grown and they're in puberty and their bodies have changed, but they're really great at understanding, oh, Miss Terry, I ate this, and I really felt bad. But I know what the problem is. I'm just coming in for you to validate it. So it's just really fascinating. And so when we stop becoming scared of food, right? So can I, will I never eat kale? No, I'll probably have kale in a salad, but will I make a smoothie of it first thing in the morning? Absolutely not because it's going to kick my butt. So what I do is I navigate my best match. That's I call my center lane food. And then I eat around the fringe. So last night I had a sulfur sensitivity. I had broccoli. I, had, I decided I wanted to do a stir fry with some scallops and some shrimp. And I did broccoli and peppers and I did some mushrooms and I was fine. My body was seeking that out. And so being in tune, I also know what the season is. I know, also know what I'm doing in my week. So it's just really that navigation. But once you understand your genetic tendencies, you're going to say, okay, these are foods that I know I can eat most of the time. And these are foods I know that I have to be careful with. Or I lean into, my, my liver needed some phase one detoxification. Broccoli is a really good source for that. So it's not being afraid and it's not being so rigid in our thinking. And I think if we can be flexible, then the fear goes away. And also the dogma of who's right, who's wrong. I think there's right, wrong ways to be. We say, are you eating the right, wrong foods? They're right foods, but they may be wrong for you at this time. I think that makes uh, sense. <clears throat> in my journey, when I've... And I've also spoken to a lot of different experts and trying to figure out. It seems what goes, the common thread that goes is um, it all depends. So it depends on you. There are certain things like refined sugar. That's bad for everyone. Um, but a few things that we don't want to put in our body. And then the other things is depending on where you are right now in your life. It also depends on the source of it. The quality, and as you're saying, does this actually have mold? Because if it has mold, then it's going to be damaging to you, where if you're getting a clean source, then it's going to be fine. And then it's not eating too much of the same thing again and again and again. Exactly. And we can have, I say, I follow an 80-20 rule. For example, unless you're celiac and you can't have gluten, you follow an 80-20 rule. It was, this was a long weekend here in the United States. And I had ice cream and I had some good, I had some sweets, <laughs> but in, in a The friend of mine brought me a Snickers bar as a joke and, and I, and we shared it and it was fine. I was fine. Um, but 
it doesn't mean that you have to be afraid. And this is where the upper, the third piece of the Cochrane method in terms of that emotional link to genetic expression. If you're afraid of something, you will be much less likely to digest that food in real time than if you embrace it and say, okay, I know this isn't my best choice, but it's a fine choice for me right now. Yeah. Unless you have an overt allergy. And I will tell you, we've taken children with 52 anaphylactic allergies to food and now they are i just got a picture from this little girl she she was surrounded by her nuts that she previously if she were in company with would be anaphylactic too so the body can do anything we just have to be smart about it so how do we i think that's quite fascinating as well like i did the igg4 blood test in regards to figuring out food intolerances mm -hmm. um, and my doctor told me that Um, this is a food intolerance that means that it's not something that's for life, but you need to keep a break from it. And then you can try and reintroduce it slowly, but you don't want to have too much of it. Mm -hmm. how, how do you navigate that if you're not doing a blood test? Or well, do you also do the IgG4 in your clinic? Or We can have, so we've been working with, her name is Liliana, and I've never seen a child that is anaphylactic to so many things. I've been working with her since she was 10 months old. She just turned 10. Yeah. She was rejected from Children's, from Hopkins, from all the big hospitals here in D.C. And, and beyond. And we found out that at the root, she had a massive staph issue. It was all fungal for her. And that was tripping all her genes that made her not able to detoxify. And so year over year, we would make her body stronger. And then now she actually went to uh, a clinic in uh, California with our work together to microdose in a very safe setting. And she just came back and she's pretty much graduated. So I told her we were going to have for her next birthday that she was, we were going to have a peanut butter pool party that she was going to just dive into peanut butter and these <laughs> not the food that she's going to yeah. be choice, but to not be so afraid that if she's even in within 10 feet of, of a food source that it could cost her life. Incredible. So, I think, Terry, that also goes to something that I find in the biohacking circle is there's kind of that spectrum like we have for psychology, like um, we went from just like sick to being okay and then from okay to being great. And when people are really sick, we need to do a lot more until they're okay. But once the body becomes okay, it can handle a lot more. So there's like there's a time to be kind of semi-fanatic, like that little girl where you really need to be careful. And then once you kind of stabilizes the body again, then it's the time to also like chill a bit more, uh, still follow the good stuff. And you're saying you can eat a half a snicker. It's not going to make you die like dying. But if you really have like in a really, really bad condition, you need to stay off that snickers. Right. Right. It's exactly right. And so, so I just had a gentleman in here yesterday who has a third stage colon cancer and he was radiated for several weeks. On my plan, he was able to still have normal bowels. He didn't lose the weight and he had energy and his recovery has been phenomenal. He's only been working with me for six weeks and they wanted to get back to those foods. And I said, you have a test in three weeks that's going to say whether the tumor is gone or not. You can wait three weeks. You can wait three weeks to still be in this food plan. We're talking a, a short-term investment for a potentially long-term payoff because if that tumor is gone, You don't have to have chemo for 18 weeks, right? right. So it's the mindset, um, the mindset of, well, I'm only going to do this for this bit. Well, what's it worth it to you? What's it worth to you? And, and so just like you said, we, there are times where we have to be extremely vigilant. And then there are times when we can relax it, relax into something better. 
but it's a practice. I call it the practice of the practice. It's just like yoga or piano or any instrument. The facility comes with the practice. And if we practice this as a lifestyle, we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to feel deprived. We are in charge. And when we're in charge, then we're in our power and in our alignment with ourselves. And they've done studies that show in those moments, our immune system can go up to 50% for up to five hours. So that alone is an improvement. And if we can do this as a practice, we will win, if you will, over time, over any condition that we might have been told that you will have to live with for the rest of your life. Yeah. So Terry, tell me, I'm not allowed to eat my kill any longer. <laughs> my practice of my morning smoothies, now I started fasting most days. So sometimes it's a late lunch that I kind of use the smoothie, but I used to put both spinach and kill. I think it was a recipe from Eric Edmendes, mm -hmm. who built WildFit, which has been super successful in transforming thousands of lives as well and i heard it from this uh, other person that i kind of been taking this recipe but now i hear dave asprey and you're saying like kill a kale stay off the kale like what's up with that so what's really up with it is the change in our macrobiology with the 300 billion pounds of glyphosate that we spray on our crops annually which is the active ingredient in roundup It has been, I believe, one of the most deleterious substances for our macrobiology because of its downstream impacts. To kale, what the downstream impact has been is that this glyphosate has stopped our body's ability to produce the micro gut flora that would take the oxalate piece, the oxalate bacteria. Oxalates are protective coating on plants. They're poisons. And so we used to have, we used to have the gut microbiome to be able to break that piece of that food substance down that is otherwise so healthy, like spinach and almonds and berries. We no longer have that bacteria robust in us. When we can't break that down, it becomes toxic. If you have that toxicity and you have also some gut dysbiosis and you have genetic predispositions, kale can be kill killer kale. It becomes a problem. And so until we can get back to an environment that is depleting the bacteria that allowed us to coexist with these plant sources and or somebody discovers the bacteria that can re be repopulated, not there's not a probiotic yet that's been developed, then we really have to be mindful. Mm -hmm. So this is, again, the continuum. And part of my work, I say in our practice is to be great, we have to iterate. So that means that I used to, my first book, I was pro-sulfur and pro-kale. That was 10 years ago when I wrote it. But things have changed. I'm not hypocritical. It's just that the environment changed. And so I had to change with the environment. I had to become iterative to stay ahead of what was happening. And I've been told with kale that if I damp it or kind of like some boiling water, I leave it for a minute or two, that should be better. It's better still not. For me, and I, I've had kale smoothies, for me, yeah. it, It really isn't isn't a good choice. So I put cilantro in my smoothies instead. Okay. Um, And that seems to be better. Mm -hmm, for me, it is, for sure. I will have to go grocery shopping for that, see if they have that frozen down as well. Uh, the wonderful thing here in Denmark, at least, we have a lot of frozen vegetables that are, um, uh, what's it called, uh, organic. Yeah. And the rules for organic food are a lot higher in Denmark than 
kind of the rest of the world. We're lucky in that perspective that we're very conservative, where the rest of Europe, for example, is putting a bunch more chemicals, even though it's supposed to be organic. And the US, even worse. Well, see, that's true. And, and in Denmark, you may have, you may not have had that tipping point yet in your microbiome, macrobiome rather. So kale may not be terrible for you yet, yeah. unless the standards change. And this is my whole philosophy of the wildetarian approach is living as nature intended. If we live as nature intended, it will serve us, not hurt us. But we've stepped so far away from living as nature intended is that nature is no longer natural and it's not, is no longer serving us. Yeah. So Terry, now you've been in the space for a while and you speak to many other experts. What's a common misunderstanding apart from kale is good that you see in the industry? Well, one of my pioneering discoveries are amyloids and how they have become a real problem in affecting the resurgence of viral loads. And amyloids are truncated protein structures that are indigestible. There are exogenous amyloids, meaning they come from the outside and they're endogenous amyloids. Endogenous amyloids, we make them as an inflammatory response so we can, the body can say, oh, I need to go to inflammation so I can start a healing process. And those are self sustaining mechanisms that are that go, they're homeostatic, meaning that they go to balance. But what we have discovered through the food supply, especially in the United States, that the crowding conditions of the way we grow our animals, especially chicken and beef, chicken being the most studied, is that the crowding, because of the stress response, creates these truncated proteins in their tissue, which are not broken down by the cooking process. When the amyloid burden in them is ingested by us, these amyloids, and again, these are studies out of Cambridge and Japan, show that they are contributing to viral reactivation, which is contributing to autoimmunity. And so we've seen this over and over again in my practice, and that's one of the tenets of the wildetarian diet is to have a low amyloid burden food supply, because in doing so, you're, re you're reducing the amyloid burden, which reduces the viral load, but the studies that we have found which is also back to your mold, is the amyloid will build biofilm, which then feeds and protects that mold and pathogenic organism. And that biofilm then feeds the amyloid burden. I call it the ping pong effect. So it's been really beautiful to see how we have resolved multiple times Hashimoto's by removing the amyloids, if the Hashimoto's was an Epstein-Barr or uh, Bell's palsy, or polycystic ovarian syndrome, or even Cushing's disease, which is a very deleterious condition where there's a pituitary adenomas. These autoimmune conditions, I was in Charlottesville this weekend, I wasn't even in my, my hometown, and I happened to run into a client of mine that had lupus for over a decade. And by eating wild, she no longer has lupus, and she doesn't, three years out, she's no longer lupus. She gave me a big hug. <laughs> and she's like, I, I'm here because of you, I can walk. Mm. without pain. And so I really believe that this is a monumental discovery uh, in my application. I didn't discover the amyloid burden that was clinically proven, but it was, it was in academia and I've applied it in a clinical setting uh, under the umbrella of the Cochrane method. And I, I believe that's one of my greatest applications. Interesting. So it's very much about looking at uh, the food sources of meat and how that has kind of lived. So the ones that have been in small cages, which when you see the video of how animals are living around, like you start questioning humanity, like 
what it is we're doing. But that is definitely showing that's a problem. But if it's more wild or like in Denmark, when we have the organic, that where they have a lot of space running around, yes. then that meat should be okay to eat. Is that understood correct? That is correct. And also looking to that parent of that chicken, because we know there's transgenerational DNA that's passing through now. So we look to like heritage breed, even if it's not wild heritage breed, uh, seems they seem to do really well. Now, will that, does that say I will never have a piece of steak again? No, I love my pasture-fed steak. If I'm traveling, which I do quite a bit, even during this 20-month period, I will seek first wild or lamb, wild fish, and so forth. But if it's a pasture-fed piece of steak, my body can tolerate it. Can it tolerate it over time? Probably not, because I also ha don't have methyl donors, so I'm not a robust maker of certain amino um, digestive enzymes that allow me to digest meat well, but I have no problem digesting bison and venison and elk. I had bison yesterday for lunch. So it's really, again, matching our best selves to our food. Yeah. Fascinating. Time is running, Terry. Uh, there's a ton of other questions that I would love to go through, but kind of summing up, if you had to give like three advice on how to eat well, that people can go do tomorrow? Okay. Well, the first thing is <clears throat> the preparation of food and the way you eat is integral to how it will be digested. If you're in a hurry, if you're upset, if you're mad, it really stops the digestive processes. So food is the miraculous transformation that sustains life. It's a sacred exchange. And taking just that moment to breathe in and be grateful for that which is going to sustain and give you life is the first thing. It's that piece of the Cochrane method that goes to my, where's my emotional state? Yeah. And so I want to be really at peace with my food and honor it. The second thing is really start paying attention to your body. You don't have to be a biochemistry expert like me to understand what is your body signaling. If you have a, a meal and you feel tired 40 minutes later, That's a sugar imbalance. Or if you feel hungry at, right after you've eaten, your satiety feedback loop is off. That means that you don't, your protein, you're not digesting those proteins. If you swell, that means that you could, that food that you ate to hit your tipping point in your lymph with fat. So really examining the body. And I, I, I encourage my clients every morning to look up down their, down their body. Is this swollen here? That's edema. I ate something that made me puffy. Do I have yellow around my lips? That means that my liver is backed up. I had liver toxicity. I better have a something to detoxify the liver. Cilantro is a great detoxifier and cucumber is as well. Do I have any new growths on my body? Do I just, oh, I have a wart. Oh, that means I've got a fungal infection. I better lay off the corn and the mushroom. So those things that are so easy. We forget that the body is this highly intelligent machine that's constantly trying to say, hey, oh, I'm trying to talk to you. And so it's super easy. And then the third one is movement. When we get stuck in patterns, and we're really good at making patterns, we have to move. And so I have this approach, which I call stop, drop, and roll. If, we're, if we've just heard some bad news, which that's inevitable, we're living in this very dynamic, crunchy, I call it crunchy time. <clears throat> and so we have to support that immunology by our thinking. And so it's not to say that we can't be sad, upset, fill in the blank, but let it pass. And the best way I know to let it pass and actually transmute into something else is stop, interrupt the broadcast, drop it, 
literally like take it out of your field by movement. And that can be running, walking, stretching, yelling, but you have to move the energy through and then roll into something that's higher frequency. What made you happy? What brings you joy? Put on a, a, a song and start dancing. Think about a moment that you had a week ago where you're reflecting on something that brought you some joy or some peace. It's a very powerful approach and it, it can be done in real time and you need nothing. Beautiful. I, I love those uh, advice. And the last thing is something that I definitely try to do a lot myself. So uh, yeah, thank you, Terry. Terry, where can people find out more about you? If someone is like, okay, I need to know more about this former banker who is now changing lives all around the world and have like thousands of patients and build a framework and yeah. Where well, can people? I have two websites. TerryCochran.com is my, my, my pack for my practice and where we have our supplements. Amazon.com for my book. The Global Sustainable Health Institute is a company I launched last year that really speaks to my teaching methods and how we bring this to the world at scale. I'm on all social media. We're here to inform. And so every social media platform we are on, but we invite you to really look at our website You on, our, uh, on the Terry Cochran website under the search bar. You can put in most any search word and we are a plethora of, of free information. And we invite you to just keep keep seeking and trying to, not trying, but striving to understand yourself so that you can better be on, on the planet. Wonderful. I'll make sure to link to all the social media accounts as well and the website so where people can find it easily here in the show notes as well. Wonderful. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, Terry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Island. Be sure to subscribe for more episodes on how to be the best version of yourself. And if you found this show helpful, then please leave us a review so more people will learn about the podcast or share with a friend who can benefit from it too. Thank you again and have a wonderful day.